This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome. Welcome. Ice cream and intense scholars. It's the Improbable Research Podcast. I'm Mark Abrams, editor of the magazine Annals of Improbable Research, with a special pocket-sized episode about research that makes people laugh, then think. If you like what you're hearing today, consider supporting us at our website, improbable.com. In Cambridge, Massachusetts, amidst hunkering hordes of scientists and engineers and students hungry for knowledge and ice cream, a cozy store called Toscanini's Ice Cream is in some ways the center of it all. Here are some flash-frozen bits of history from Toscanini's ice cream techno-sociologist Gus Rancatori. We're close to MIT and not too far from Harvard, but we're also near BU and Northeastern. There are a lot of young people out there who have a startling amount of intensity about what they're working on. Intensity how? Their apparent concentration. The fact that they come in and work at the ice cream store without talking to any of us or any friends, they could grind it out for hours until finally we might say, we'd like to close soon and they'll go back to wherever they came from. We also kind of absorb a certain amount of background information just from regularly seeing the customers so that people would show up with some clockwork regularity. And sometimes it was because they would come 10 or 15 minutes before we closed because they wanted to get ice cream or coffee so they could work through the night. A lot of people at universities these days studying anything work very hard. It can be impressive. What specifically was different about them that caught your attention, especially when the store was new and this whole world was still somewhat new to you? The dopey, nerdy cliche is not entirely untrue, but neither is everybody you meet at a mechanical engineering lab or a computer science lab kind of a silly stereotype. I'll tell you one thing that I always enjoyed. At the beginning of the school year, which used to be called RO, Registration and Orientation at MIT, Everything at MIT has a, some kind of jargon name to it. MIT has a lot of jargon associated with it. And there are jokes about that. MIT students often refer to buildings by numbers instead of names. There's a joke, why do MIT buildings have numbers instead of names? And the response is because they're named after alumni. Toscanini's ice cream shop itself was given an MIT building number, yes? Right. Somebody extrapolated the number system so that we had a number. I don't think I can find that right off the bat. There was also a story that when the status center was built in Kendall Square... The person who came up with the number for Toscanini's ice cream was one of the people involved in giving official building numbers to MIT buildings, no? Right. He was doing something on the side that MIT might not have enjoyed. I remember seeing extrapolations of the number system that extended as far away as like central New Jersey, where some guy had figured out how to describe his parents' home in Metuchen, New Jersey. Which is about 300 miles away. Yeah. Using 
the MIT number system, which has to do which side of Mass Avenue you're on. And it's complex enough not to seem so logical. When they were building the status center in Kendall Square, MIT went out of its way not to give the building a number because it was supposed to be known as the status center. A man named Ray Stata had uh, given a lot of money and MIT had thrown in more money to build this landmark. And they didn't really want it to be known as Building 45. Although I think it actually eventually earned a number which is used by MIT students as a way of locating it. But the other thing that I started to describe happens in the middle of August when um, incoming students and grad students start arriving in Cambridge and on campus. And one of the things you see are people wearing T-shirts that are sort of nerdy, space camp T-shirts, T-shirts that say things like Nebraska Young Scholars, T-shirts that people have earned for winning science fairs and academic competitions. I used to think that the most minimal and haughty were the ones that kids from New York wore if they had gone to the Bronx High School of Science. And they would wear T-shirts that on the sleeve in lowercase helvetical lettering just said science. Hmm. And if you had to ask, you didn't know. And they would sort of kind of swan around is, I think, the English term for it, getting their ice cream and uh, meeting people from famous high schools all over the world. Sounds romantic in an unusual way. Yeah. But um, some of the people who showed up at the beginning of the school year were also very fashionable, very well-off children who'd gone to elite high schools in all parts of the globe. And they did not show up looking like anybody on the Big Bang Theory. Okay. What did we start to talk about here? <laughs> Oh, intensity. About what? Intensity. Yeah, there was intensity. Um, Specific behavior. You know, somebody would come in and they would do something or not do something. One of the things had to do with the intensity of very hardworking baby engineers was when they tried ice cream, they brought to bear their immense analytic skills. So you would give them a taste of vanilla ice cream. They would put it in their mouths and kind of masticate it a little let it rest near their taste buds, think about associations that the ice cream might prompt. You know, it was sometimes kind of difficult for servers to endure. You know, it's just vanilla ice cream, for heaven's sakes. It's very good vanilla ice cream. It's not going to taste like a caterpillar. Either you like it or you don't like it. But, you know, these people were sometimes very analytic about the simplest foods they ate. For example, the vanilla ice cream is, I think, the simplest one. Or sometimes if they're trying to pair up ice cream flavors, we usually have 32 flavors. So I don't know what the mathematical extrapolation of how many combinations there are with 32 flavors. But, you know, if you get vanilla, there are 31 other flavors you can pair with vanilla. And, you know, so some of these people are trying vanilla with malted vanilla, vanilla with sweet cream, vanilla with milk chocolate, vanilla with dark chocolate, vanilla with coffee, vanilla with cappuccino. And they can run through the whole list. We generally don't have rules about how many flavors you can taste, except on busy Fridays and Saturdays, and I think on the 4th of July. But some customers in search of the perfect combination can exhaust our patience. Do you ever get chemists coming in starting to uh, explain to you in great detail what's in your flavor and what's in your ice cream? One of the first unique customers was, I think, from MIT. He stood out for several reasons. He had a mustache. He always wore a sweater that seemed a little nicer than he might have on. And he had um, a very attentive girlfriend. He showed up on a dark day, perhaps in our first week of operation, and asked if we had any food or ingredients that luminesced or fluoresced. 
I was puzzled by the question. He goes, well, if you eat a black Necco wafer in the dark, it releases a little charge that you can see. A lot of people not know what a Necco wafer is. Necco wafers, I think, are being re- revived or maybe reconceptualized, but they were the ultimate depression era candy. You got a tube of Necco wafers for five cents. They had about 20 not very flavorful sugar candies inside the tube, and they were manufactured on Massachusetts Avenue in a large building that's now a bio tech hub. Just a block or two away from Toscanini's. That's right. My father said that when he went to school at the other end of Cambridge, a nickname for MIT students was Neckos. So he's a Necco. Don't pay any attention to him. When you walk anywhere in that neighborhood, a lot of days, the air was full of the sugary smell of that candy. There was the Necco factory. There was a Tootsie Roll factory. There was a wonderful donut shop that wasn't technically a candy manufacturer. There were trucks and railroad trains delivering sugar syrups and corn syrups. When we opened in 1981, the last vestiges of Cambridge's candy manufacturing were still present. And you're right. You could smell the sugar. Let's get back to the man who wanted to know which ice cream would glow. Or which ice cream ingredients. So it was so quiet then. I couldn't imagine any harm he was going to commit. And he was very persistent. He came in every day for weeks and he would come in and try every flavor, you know, scoop it, not to taste it, just to see if something visual occurred. And then he also um, would go through all our ingredients and um, usually cut them in half or break them if he could, including cookies, pieces of unsweetened chocolate, semi-sweet chocolate. Ice cream stores usually have a lot of ingredients. He went through them all. How would he cut them? What instrument would he use to do the cutting? He carried some sort of Boy Scout knife or maybe with a special illumination blade to it. But he had like a Swiss Army knife or a Boy Scout knife, and he would just put things on a counter and cut them in half. Nothing ever happened. He's looking for little sparks or what? Yeah, he was looking for sparks. Have you yourself ever eaten a uh, Necco wafer in the dark? Yeah, yeah. I remember it from the days when Necco wafers were around. They weren't very tasty. My father grew up in the Depression, and he was a stereotypical Depression baby. He was cheap. He had five children, and um, my father's idea of a splurge was buying a tube of Necco wafers and sharing them in a grand manner with his five children, who all wanted individual bags of M&Ms and Good and Plenty's and real candy bars. We didn't want to relive the days of Herbert Hoover. We hated Necco wafers. If you want to provoke bad memories, mention Necco wafers to my brother and sister when we're in the car. We never made any flavors with Necco wafers. I was about to ask. (laughs) Yeah. And how about Mr. Glow, the chemist, the man who would cut ingredients? He disappeared? He was a customer, an occasional customer for, I would say, 10 years. And then finally, he disappeared. But he almost always had the same sweater on. Did he wash it? I presume so. He was uh, a well-dressed, besweatered man. You've been listening if you've been listening to a special pocket-sized episode of the Improbable Research Podcast. The podcast is a quasi-kinda, sorta, secret outgrowth of the magazine Annals of Improbable Research. I inveigle you to subscribe to the magazine and buy some back issues, too. Also, get some details about the 2020 Ig Nobel Prize ceremony and how we're coping with the copious constraints of the COVID-19 pandemic and get some info about how you can help via our Patreon. All this at our website, improbable.com. It's possible that Seth Glicksman is the improbable production assistant. Next time on this podcast, we'll look at 
something or other. Until then. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>